Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. We are talking with Chawan Ku. She is a writer of the intersection of pop culture, the occult, and futurism. Her TikTok is one of the most popular occult accounts on the platform. She also interviews some of the most distinguished occultists and witches in the English-speaking world on her YouTube, Witches and Wine. Great name. And her book, Spellbound, details her journey from an atheist witch into one of the most visible East Asian practitioners of both Eastern and Western occult tra- uh, traditions. Uh, so, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, thanks for coming on. So, I will say, when your book Spellbound came out, I feel like I saw it everywhere. Oh. Like it was a like I like it was clearly a big hit. Um, and so when I saw that we had um, an email with the opportunity to interview you, I just knew we had to like jump onto it. Um, so for our listeners who just may be unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit more um, about your book and uh, how you came to uh, kind of bring together the Eastern and Western magic? Yeah, so my book Spellbound uh, it is a, I would say, a book for beginner witches. It's written from the accessibility point for a baby witch, a new witch. But I did it in respect of, okay, it's the modern world right now. So yes, there's tradition. And coming from uh, East Asian culture, of course, tradition is very much prized. But at the same time, if you go to Seoul, which is the capital of South Korea, you go to Seoul, you will see one of the biggest Buddhist temples right across the street from COEX Conference Center, which is one of the largest, most modern underground malls and conference centers. So you have modernity and you have tradition looking at each other. And in East Asia, these things are not really considered like weird, like to juxtapose those two things together. And so I come from that tradition. I come from a culture where people are doing very esoteric things, but so that their kid will get into Harvard, so that their business will do well. Versus I feel like in the West, the traditions, they seem to be a little bit more about separating spirituality from the material world. Uh, And that's not how I was raised. That's just not my culture. Not only that, but compared to, I think a lot of people who identify as occultists or witches, I'm very much into the world of Web3, the world of technology, And that is also part of my East Asian culture. Of course, we all know just how much technology is an important part of East Asian culture. South Korea has like 98% high-speed broadband. It's like the most internet-connected country in the world. Um, When I lived in Korea, um, I mean, you go to like a bodega, you go to like a 7-Eleven type of place, and you don't even have to open the door. It just opens for you. It's very technologically advanced. So I wanted to create an accessible witchcraft book that deals with the intersections of what I know and enjoy, which are Eastern culture, Western occultism and culture, also Eastern 
um, traditions, especially Korean traditions, the book is illustrated, heavily illustrated. There's over 60 custom-made illustrations for the book. I actually uh, was told by my publisher, oh yeah, this is gonna be a coffee table book. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. And then when I actually saw the final result, I was like, yes, I love it. Um, it's very much uh, illustrated, very heavily illustrated, but in the style of Asian art. Um, the illustrator is an amazing woman. Her name's Kring Demetrio. She's a Filipina. And it was important for me that I, as an Asian author, have an illustrator who's also Asian. And you'll see in the back of the book that all the editors, the illustrator, myself, uh, they all have their names transliterated into Korean as well. So it's very heavily influenced by my personal journey as a Korean American, somebody who um, part, is part of the Korean diaspora going back to Korea, but then also talking about technology and putting that into the whole uh, spectrum of stuff. It's divided, it, of course it's written in English, but it's divided into the five elements of uh, Chinese alchemy. But then on top of that, I also asked a lot of my really good occult friends. So when you mentioned in the intro that I have the privilege of talking to some of the coolest English speaking occultists in the world. So I have that YouTube channel and I was able to ask a lot of these buddies of mine, uh, these people I've interviewed, would you please add in a little bit, some tips and tricks and stuff, some, some things that our audience, which is going to be mainly, I would say, beginner witches or people who are curious or people want to know a little bit more about these intersections. Uh, can you give them a little bit of guidance of certain rituals and certain ideas of how to do certain sorts of rituals, if not the actual ritual itself? So I am so proud and happy that this book came to fruition because it came to represent all the things that I've been trying to do with my social media platforms, with Witches and Wine, which is my YouTube channel, which is to reach out to just, I guess, the average girl next door who's a little witch curious, but wants to go a little bit deeper, doesn't just want to go on the surface. And I feel as though the book, because it is beautiful to look at, it's beautiful to touch, it's beautifully illustrated, it's written in accessible language, and it also details my own journey. And it is so intersectional that my hope is that those who read it um, we'll be able to see all that and to be able to use my book as a launching pad and inspiration for their magical practice. One thing that is really interesting is that, um, you know, you said that you are kind of bringing these practices together. And of course, we see a lot of Eastern um, practices and magic done in the West, but it, it it's it's definitely, it, it comes across as like, you know, really whitewashed in like these new age um, practices. Uh, like, what has it been like kind of watching these practices that you know more intimately, um, maybe watered down a little bit by Western practitioners? Hmm. So this goes back to the conversation of what is cultural appropriation versus appreciation? What is the difference between a cultural exchange, which evolves and grows both sides, uh, both parties, versus just wholesale appropriation and almost like cosplaying as another culture? And I would say that one of the things that actually annoys me the most isn't so much that people are trying to learn new cultures. It's also the idea that there has to be these like very strict rules about what is and isn't cultural appropriation versus appreciation. I can tell you for sure, people of color, um, indigenous people, BIPOC, 
we know, we can tell from the energy if something is an appreciation or if it's just wholesale ripping off and like just being like ridiculously cosplaying. We know from the energy. We don't need uh, non-people of color to jump in and start to like, in a way, like put in these like really harsh rules and stuff. I find that a lot of conversation about appreciation versus appropriation gets hijacked by Westerners. Um, so it'll be like people who are from Eastern culture will be a little bit more chill about it, but then Westerners will like start trying to kind of uh, put rules and, and, and structure around other Westerners, almost like gatekeeping other Westerners from a tradition that doesn't belong to any of these like loud voices involved in the conversation. So for me, what I've observed is the constant centering of non-Eastern voices about Eastern practices. And it's not just Eastern practices, it's all sorts of you know, non-European uh, practices as well. So for, I would say that it's been one of those things where I see that there are people who appreciate and, and I also see people who appropriate. People who appropriate, I think just in general, uh, rub us all the wrong way. But when I see appreciation, I mean, I really appreciate it because the thing is, is that my book, it's talking about things like tarot cards and Western Hellenistic astrology as well. And one of the things that I'm hoping to do with my next projects is to start bringing some of that more into Asia. Because right now, in Korea, at least the last time I was there, which was back in 2017 or so, 2017, 2018. I mean, there were tarot trucks. We have food trucks in America. There's tarot trucks that were parked outside nightclubs in Gangnam, which is like that oh, wow. ritzy <laughs> district. Yeah, which is like that ritzy district that that song Gangnam style you know, made super popular a couple of years ago. There's also astrology cafes. Um, in Asia, there's this thing where you can go to certain cafes where you can order like a delicious drink and then you're sitting in like comfy couches and stuff. And then you can also get your astrology chart read. Now, a lot of these resources, the best resources on Western occultism are, are obviously written in Western languages. So the information is definitely starting to come to Korea, but it, it's, you know, it's coming slowly. And the thing is, there is a desire and a hunger for people in East Asia to learn a little bit more it's, because it's interesting. You know, they're appreciating the same way. So it goes both ways. When it's a two-way street, when people are exchanging ideas, then it's appreciation. Uh, and that's one of the things that I hope that I can delve more into, like having one foot in the Western world and one foot in the Eastern world, how to become that bridge and how to have both sides feel like it's a win-win exchange. How do uh, people who primarily practice the um, Eastern practices, how do they view? I mean, you said that like it's it's a little bit more, um, you know, practical uh, Eastern, you know, uh, you know, get my kid into Harvard and, um, you know, you know, very real world. Like, like, how do they view kind of? Um, Western spirituality kind of, I guess, if at all, if they even think about it, you know? I mean, I can speak in terms of, let's say, a very powerful Western spirituality modality that's entered into South Korea, which is Christianity um, and Catholicism. So Korea has more Catholic martyrs than almost, I think, any other country in the world, according to the Vatican. Wow. So, yeah. 
I mean, and most of the universities in Korea were founded by Christian missionaries. And the Christian missionaries were a very big part of the Korean independence movement. So Korea was a colony of Japan up until World War II, like from, I think, the early 1900s up until, you know, basically 1945 or so. So already there's a very strong Christian strain in Korea. I think 25% of the population, they're Christian. So in terms of Western spirituality, I mean, East Asia is a little bit different, I think, than the West. Just Asia in general sees spirituality not as something out there, separate. It's very much interwoven into regular life. So just the mentality of being a little bit more relaxed, like spirituality is just not saying that you shouldn't believe, but I think East Asians are just in general less concerned about these very abstract ideas of like, you need to believe. It's more like, yeah, but did you do the work? Did you put off the offering? Did you do the ritual? Did you do this? Did you, you know, so it's sort of like, yeah, but did you actually give tithing? You know, these are the things that I think concern East Asian spirituality a bit more. Um, and because of that, and because of our thousands of years of tradition of doing rituals and things like that, and being quite syncretic about a lot of our spiritual practices, it's not as big a deal. I think Westerners get really worked up and fascinated and oftentimes exoticize and fetishize this mysterious Eastern spirituality. And in, you know, meanwhile, in the East, we're just like, yeah, but will it help me, you know, um, gain material stuff? Like, it's like not a big deal. Like, is this going to help my human life? Uh, and not, I'm not saying that there's not an esoteric strain that may seem more familiar to people in the West, but the average East Asian, it just doesn't approach spirituality, I think, the same way that Westerners do. That's really interesting. And, you know, even just hearing you speak on it, um, just based off the, you know, very small amount of, you know, like knowledge I have, as you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, wait, no, like that totally makes sense. Like, like all the pieces are kind of falling together. I just had never really thought about it in a way, um, in the way you described it. But I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly kind of how I've seen, um, you know, it practiced. Uh, one thing I think is really fascinating is that you said you have a focus on uh, the digital world and futurism. So I have to ask you, because it is the hot topic right now, AI, like where are, what are your thoughts on like the AI creation of like books and videos and media, or if, if you have thoughts on it? I currently don't have very strong opinions like that other people do, which is very funny to me because I probably am deeper into that world than maybe the average person. Um, but I feel as though the deeper somebody is into something, the less firmly you grasp onto opinions about it because you see just how quickly it evolves. And the way that AI was six months ago is not where it is today. So you just naturally are going to shed previous opinions and evolve into new ones. And after a while, you're just like, I'm not even going to bother having like really strong opinions. But in general, I, I'm very, very interested in this concept of occultist technology and what is technology. So AI is just the latest in a very long line of technology. And what is technology? Technology is everything that augments human abilities. Shoes were a technology. Paper is a technology. 
So when we talk about occultist technology, these were also ways to augment, let's say, psychic abilities, um, connection to the universe, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I don't see that much of a difference, to be perfectly honest, between AI and, let's say, shoes, you know? Like, I just see them all as a type of technology, because ultimately what's going to happen is that these things just naturally evolve, and the things that 25 years ago would have been seen as a type of witchcraft, 50 years ago, witchcraft, 100 years ago, burned at the stake. Oh, my God, if you hadn't mentioned anything like the Internet 100 years ago, I mean, people would have had you locked up, probably. And yet it happened. So to me, I'm just like, ah, this is like the natural evolution of stuff. And human beings have always been very interested in technology. And in fact, I would say the archetype of the occultist and witch has always been that of an occultist, uh, sorry, a technologist, because the thing is, is that if you look back at old, in any tradition, any sort of ritual, magic ritual being done, they were doing to the best of their abilities before, you know, Renaissance science and uh, material science came in with all the scientific method. They were doing their best to hack reality the same way that we hack reality currently by using nanotechnology and um, genetic uh, engineering and, and all these other things that we can do with more like empirical material science. They were trying to do that with alchemy. They were trying to do that with perhaps like what they thought were their magic rituals as a science. I mean, astrologers used to be astronomers back in the day. Like NASA always likes to talk a lot of smack about, oh, you know, like what about procession? You know, astrology, yes, they did. Astrologers of yore absolutely knew about procession. The Egyptians were very sophisticated astronomers. They could do astronomy at night. You know how hard that is. So the thing is, is that I'm just like, you know, it's like in some ways, like, the, the wisdom, the sciences of yore have been just proven or like been sort of like, oh, rediscovered in modern days, but it's all the same. So I don't see AI as being particularly that different. I'll be very honest with you. I will say, um, I, I still don't think it's to a point where it's so good you can't recognize it. Um, just a little anecdote. Uh, I'm really into the show Yellow Jackets like just obsessed. And um, I was on YouTube and, and and there was just this video. It was like, oh, learn more about the new cast of her season two. I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely want to know more. So I click on the video and there's like 60 seconds where it's like, um, oh my God, who plays the Hobbit and the Hobbit? Um, I don't remember his name, but they're like, he's going to play this new detective. And then um, a new detective for Misty, and then so and so is going to be a new detective, friend of Misty, like over and over and over again. I'm like, okay, I get it. A person did not make this YouTube video. <laughs> like a robot made this. <laughs> but yes, so it's that, not that's so true. good that it's undetectable. Um, it it it's just really fascinating. Again, like just the past few months, watching it kind of seep into our media. Um, or, you know, I'll be reading an article for the show and I'll pause. I'm like, oh, this was written by AI. It's repeating sentences over and over again. Um, and it's really fascinating kind of watching it move and go. Um, and like, honestly, just the next 12 months, I just want to see where it goes. I think I have a slightly different perspective on AI simply because I come from a very fundamentally different place. And I think that there's quite, I'm not the only one who thinks like this, basically. 
I think a lot of people who talk about AI, they kind of see AI as a replacement for certain things that people do. And the reason why I don't see AI as being that much different from, let's say, shoes, is that I defined technology as an augmentation, not a replacement for. So for me, it's like, well, of course, just like magic ritual does not replace the magic operator doing the actual ritual. AI augments, but does not replace. So I don't foresee AI, at least the way that I would use it and have used it in both magical and more mundane practices, as replacing or anything like that for me. I had somebody who was like trying to like utilize AI to like create like all these like, I don't know, like trying to create some stuff for me. And I was just like, no, this isn't going to work. Instead, what I see AI as being are like technicians where I'm the conductor. I am the person conducting and forming truly like the mage in the center of any sort of magic ritual, the operator. I am forming and shaping and conducting um, let's say an entire symphony orchestra of AI, whether it's ChatGPT, whether it's Midjourney, whether it's Dolly, what, whatever sort it is. And there's other also like, like there's, um, what is it called? EB synth or something like that, which is like video AI. I have ongoing lists of all the sorts of AI. And it's not just going to be on video and not just text and not just pictures. There's gonna be all sorts of different sort of AI. So how can I, the same way that if I were doing a ritual, let's say a ritual for the 72 demons, the Goetia, if I was working with Bune um, and I was doing a ritual there, like how the same sort of mindset of how I am the operator and how I am in many ways working in conjunction with, but ultimately kind of the leader of the conductor of that ritual, how do I also lead the AI? not so that it replaces me or it reduces like the hard work of being a human, but that it augments me so that I can do things that already were in my bag of tricks basically, but that were that much more difficult for me to do, or that maybe we're just a little bit slightly out of reach or maybe totally out of reach. What can I utilize AI for? And the thing is, is that I have direct experience in this because in my book, I also talk about a, a ritual that was done back in, I forget exactly when, it was either last year or the year before. This is when we had Mercury and retrograde in Gemini. It was the first time in 16 years. It's like an every 16 year thing. A lot of people say, don't do Mercury magic when it's retrograde. But I had read a book, um, but I'm like blanking out on the names, but I'd read a book about um, why doing magic during a Mercury retrograde was actually ideal. And especially in Gemini. And my friends, um, Andre Burke and Rachel Carpuccio, they are Aeolian heart, who are astrologers. We decided we're gonna lead uh, a ritual, but done on the Ethereum blockchain. So it was like, can we do a sort of ritual where we are going to literally put the ritual in a very uh, durable medium, unlike parchment, even unlike diamonds, which can be lost, which can be, you know, obliterated and stuff. What is the most durable form of technology that there is? Back, back in the day in magic, they created huge monuments. The Sphinx had, you know, bejeweled talismans made out of hard minerals and stuff, hoping to capture the, the energy of stars and like to transport it throughout the ages. They hoped that it would be the most durable thing possible. Now the most durable thing that we have is blockchain. And I was like, it's the same sort of technology. It's the same sort of mentality. So we did a magic ritual led a hundred people in a ritual on the Ethereum blockchain. And 
after that, I mean, it worked incredibly well, I thought, for a lot of us, myself included. Um, and people can even check this ritual, a specific block on the blockchain, because the blockchain, all transactions are public. So we even have a block number. I have a block number that people can check it out on. Um, so having that sort of experience, and not that it was AI, but it was Web3 technology. It was this like new emerging technology. And experiencing that, realizing that the same principles, the first principles, if you're an engineering student, you know that the first principles mean that if you learn the most foundational basic mindset and perspective, you can build a bridge in Antarctica, you can build a bridge in the savannas of Africa, you can build a bridge over the Atlantic Ocean because you're learning what it means to build a great bridge. So these things are forever and classic. So it doesn't matter what technology or what ostensibly like super hardcore technology and robots and machines do because you're always going from first principles. Yeah, that's also how um, I've seen Adam Conover talk about AI as well in terms of it really is just like there always has to be a conductor. There has to be, a, you know, um, a controller. Um, I went to school for computers, but like <laughs> back in 20, oh gosh, back, like so far back, it, feel like, it feels like it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and so it is always really fascinating to kind of watch how tech changes and how quickly it changes, especially today. Um, and then how we end up utilizing it or what we do with it. And it's, it's funny, um, you know, you have a TikTok and we talk about TikTok, uh, quite a bit on this show, just like in different forms, you know, and, uh, kind of. It's sometimes it feels like when a new tech comes out, we sometimes watch uh, humans kind of relearn how to how to be around tech and how to use tech. Um, and it really is fascinating to just kind of watch it kind of cycle kind of over and over and over again. Um, but you did mention astrology and I did have some questions for you on astrology if you wanted to. Um, if you're OK with that. Sure. Okay, awesome. So, warning, I am not very uh, astrologically competent. It's not not my strength. Uh, so I I do so some of our questions I think may seem really uh, kind of elementary. No, that's uh, cool. Again, it's about first principles, okay. <laughs> it's about the foundations. Uh, so first off, a question I see a lot, and of course I have the answer that I think, but I would love to hear what you think. Do you think, uh, as someone who um, is really uh, well-versed in astrology, do you feel witches, uh, if there are witches who don't work with the moon or don't uh, plan rituals or spells by the moon, do you think there really is a difference for witches who do and witches who don't? It depends on the witch. So yes, I am somebody who is, um, I spent quite a long time like looking through astrology and learning astrology. I'm also really into new systems that are kind of based on astrology, like human design. What I found just in terms of like myself and other people, I am not particularly sensitive to transits. And so I personally don't feel any strong inclination to do magic. And I would say in terms of just like straight up 
rituals and things like that, I have a pretty good sort of hit rate. So obviously not really following the transits and the moon and stuff, it doesn't seem to make a huge difference for me. However, there are some witches that I know where it's very important and it makes a huge difference in what they do. So it just really, really depends on the witch. That is really interesting. I've never heard that take on it before, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, th I think we all know people who are very highly affected by the moon um, and people who aren't. So I guess it would make sense that your magic would be uh, affected as well. Exactly. I find that there are some people who, um, not just the moon, but just sort of any transit, like they can almost feel it coming, like the way that some people who have like arthritis, they can feel a storm coming. They can absolutely feel it coming. Me, not so much. And I know lots of people like me who are just not that affected by, like we see it out in the world and, and I can definitely respect that some people are very sensitive to it. So I think it's more about really knowing yourself and really recognizing that like, you know, we're all very unique in how we deal with transits. I will say, I think that's going to be very validating to a lot of our listeners. Um, I've gotten quite a few listeners right in who say, like, I see on Instagram these beautiful witches doing these beautiful moon ceremonies. And they're like, I just don't want to do a moon ceremony. And, and I'm like, you don't have to do one if you don't want to, you know. Exactly. So I think that's gonna, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to make a lot of people feel a lot better with that answer. Let me tell you. Um, so we do have a question from one of our listeners, Elizabeth, and she asks, what is the best way to get into astrology? I have looked up my chart, but I'm still confused about how it works. There are so many books on the subject, and I just don't know what's credible anymore. Hmm. So pro tip, uh, what I used to do when I was first starting out in the occult, which has served me very well, is you first look for one really credible source. In astrology, I would say that that one credible source, you don't have to agree with everything they say, but you're mainly looking for that source because you want to see who they follow. And then kind of in a way like how bands or like the bibliography of a book kind of lists like all the sources, you're kind of treating the one source as that. So for me, it would be Chris Brennan's The Astrology Podcast. And on that podcast, uh, Chris, he interviews lots of different types of astrologers, and there's many different schools of astrology. Now, of course, most of the astrologers that he speaks to, they are going to be speaking English. Um, so in terms of like worldwide, I mean, obviously there's going to be some limitation of scope, but I think that's a very great place to start. Chris, I trust that vets, like all the astrologers that come on, even if he doesn't fully agree with them, he vets them to make sure that they're at least sincere and authentic in what the, it is that they're teaching. And he's also a great technician in terms of like, uh, I mean, he's, he's kind of like a astrology monk. I truly feel like in a past life, he must have like done some astrology. Um, he's been studying it for years. He actually went to university and studied astrology. And he wrote a book um, about Hellenistic astrology, which I think is required reading if you want to get into like all the nitty gritty, gritty of Hellenistic astrology, traditional astrology. However, I, I'm also friends with people who are very deep into evolutionary astrology, which in some sort of way is very, very different from traditional astrology. I think for beginners, the best thing to do is to go on a podcast or go and watch a podcast. It's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, something like the astrology podcast. It's literally the name of the podcast, right? 
um, to watch something like that, see which astrologers vibe with you. You know, the same astrologer that vibes with me may not vibe with you. Um, and then from that, then see if they wrote a book or if they do a reading and then just go from there. And then you'll find that when you do it like that, they say that the teacher appears when the student is ready. Like when you do it like that, I feel as though synchronicities happen where you find the resources that you need to find when you need to find it. Honestly, that is just such a great tip, I think, for any type of um, studying. I mean, you know, that's basically like college sources 101, right? Like you just flip to the, you know, biblio or the resources and be like, okay, what were they looking at? And like jump from there. And I think that's just a great tip in terms of like learning anything, uh, you know, in the witch world, but like else. No, I was just going to say that I think especially for fields where it's very difficult because there is no council, law board, you know, no like American board of pediatric, you know, like doctors and stuff, because there isn't something like that for witchcraft or astrology, things like that. It's very important that the primary source that you vet is somebody that you really make sure is aligned to the values that you have and um, really knows what they're talking about. So I would say, please don't have it be like the first person that you get back from a Google search or like from a TikTok search. In fact, I would say both of those, like take it, whatever you get returned back, um, take it with a grain of salt. So you will have to do some digging initially to get to that first source. Um, but once you find and vet the first source, then you can start looking at their bibliography and going a little faster with that. But that first source has to be well vetted, very well vetted. It's funny. Um, I, uh, I'm i a book editor and I feel like I've gained a little bit of a reputation with some of my writers as like uh, as like quite a hard ass when it comes to like the history sections. Because I have a really strict rule that you cannot use other witch books as sources for uh, your like history sections and such. I was like, you have to find a book that has, that's written by a, you know, by a historian because especially when it comes to like spirituality and stuff, I feel like when we take information, especially for our books or our articles or our podcasts or whatever, um, we, you know, take information and then we are, uh, presenting it through the lens of what we're talking about or our thesis or our whatever. So when you cite or you use sources that are already bending information through a lens, it's just going to get more fuzzy and more um, inaccurate over time. Uh, so I have like this really strict rule that especially when it comes to history, you cite historians, not witches. Um, and I know some, like some of my writers hate it, but I'm like, I promise it's just better. Sorry, I vibe with that. <laughs> um, question from Andrea. Uh, what are some good sources or tips for someone wanting to learn how to map birth charts? I think Demetria George has some really good books. Uh, I think there's actually a book that she wrote specifically about natal charts um, that's quite accessible, and but it comes from a more traditional astrology um, point of view. So I'm going to say that people who have um, these sorts of reputations that precede them, Chris Brennan, Austin Kopic, Demetria George, or is it Demetria George? I think it's Demetria George. Um, there are some authors that are constantly being quoted 
and constant guests on, let's say, the Astrology Podcast, or they're just very well-renowned, um, I would say look through their bibliography and look through their um, their own published works and find the ones that have titles that appeal to you. Uh, yeah. What's really fascinating is uh, I used to have a friend who was really um, into astrology pre-internet. And uh, she used to have, it was really cool. It was really neat to kind of see astrology done in this way. She would have binders um, on her shelf and she would pull down the binders and all the binders had like a maps with um, like projector paper kind of that you would like this uh, trans transparent uh, plastic paper that would go over the maps with all of her astrology stuff. And it's, it's a reminder that astrology uh, is it is a like it is a science, and there's it's it's a lot of work and um, like efforts. And watching someone do that, take out these binders with these maps and these uh, papers, it's really like a very cool process uh, to see to watch someone calculate. It is, and I think you bring up a very good point. It is a science. And therefore, this is not going to be like, you know, seven days of like learning astrology perfectly. <laughs> you know, we live in a world where we expect things to be very fun and easy to learn. But I would say that astrology is quite the opposite. I'm not saying it's not fun, but if you want to learn it in any sort of way that I feel is worth spending the time to learn, so basically learning it in like a very authentic, sincere way, that is actually going to bring value to your life. It's going to be a time-consuming process, and it's going to, you know, take a certain sort of, I'm going to say, seriousness about learning it, which is why if you take an honest look at yourself and, and you realize that, you know what, I just really know, want to know about my chart. I'm not really interested in learning about it, about astrology in general. I just want to know my chart. Go to a really good astrologer. A really good astrologer will distill everything down so that you don't have to spend like a year learning the basics of astrology. And instead, you, it, within one or two hours, you can find the map of your soul. Um, and it's completely worth the $300, $400 to go to a really good astrologer for that. Well, I have a question that uh, is, again, very, very basic, but I am sure a good handful of our listeners are probably just a little confused. Um, so the one thing that we, as people, not even just witches, but you know, these days just as people, the even if you're not interested in astrology or um, bare interest or not at all, you know your sun, your rising, and your moon. Can you? Um, and I, I've heard so many people explain the differences between these, but it never seems to be cons like consistent explanations. Um, and I'm definitely showing my weakness here to where like, uh, I've, I've heard them explain so many times. I almost don't even know anymore. Uh, but what, what would you say is the difference, um, in terms of, I guess, personality or what the point is between sun, moon and rising? So the analogy that I'm going to give is actually from my friend Rachel, the one that I did the blockchain ritual with, uh, who's the astrologer Aeolian Heart. She goes under that name. 
So you can see the sun, moon, and rising as like an apple. So the apple has three main parts. You have the skin, you have the meat, and then you have the seeds. So you have the skin of the apple, which you can see as the rising. It is the packaging. It's the first thing that you see. And it definitely has like a, a certain sort of vibe to it. But then you may bite into the apple and the apple may taste very different from how you see it. It may taste very similar to how you see it, but the meat, the, the main flavor of the apple, let's say, is your sun sign. And so oftentimes, like people who have, let's say, and I'm just totally thinking of this off the top of my head, let's say they have a, a Capricorn rising, but they have a Pisces sun. The skin is going to be very different. And it's going to, when you bite into the apple, it's going to taste a lot different than you expected because they're quite different from each other. Um, versus let's say somebody has a Cancer rising in a Pisces sun. Okay, it's like you look at a red apple and you and you expect it to be kind of tart and you bite into it, you're like, and then you're like, yes, this is what I expected. <laughs> and then you have like the seed, it's the core, it's kind of like the and it's you know, it's hidden. It's the thing that not everybody sees. But then when you eat a lot of the apple, when you go to the core of somebody, their emotional drive, their emotional motivation, that's the moon sign. And of course, the moon is where everything else kind of regenerates. It's sort of like in some sort of ways, it's associated with mother, the womb, things like that. So the seed of the apple would be the moon sign. Now, most people have, you know, a nice mix. So it's so, you know, maybe the skin doesn't necessarily totally match with like the sun, which doesn't totally match with the moon. I mean, it happens and stuff. But I think that's the easiest way to describe three. And by the way, people think that, oh, you know, maybe the the skin is like superficial, right? Maybe the rising sign is superficial and that's not true. You need the skin. You need the skin of an apple or else the insects will get into all of it. You need the boundary. You need the thing that separates this sort of apple from the other apple. The skin, the rising sign is not superficial. It's part of the whole of the apple. It's a very integral part of it. So that's another perspective that I think is important to realize. People always make it sound as though that, oh, you know, it's only skin deep and it's not that important. It's just like the first impression that people get of you. No, it's more than that. It's also, if you're using whole house systems, it's your first house, which is the house of you as an individual. When you are removed from your mother's body, like at birth, before you were conjoined, you were like one with another human being, your mother, through the umbilical cord in the womb. Uh, but once you're born, you are now a separate person. You're a separate identity. And that is when whole house systems, your rising sign is that first house. So that is you becoming an individual. That is you being born. Uh, so the skin, the rising sign isn't just a superficial thing. Just wanted to like add that in there because I know a lot of young uh, witches on TikTok, they constantly talk about the, the rising as something superficial, and it's not. I have to say, even just hearing you talk about astrology, I was like, wow, that's so beautiful. Um, and thank you for humoring our questions. I know, like, we are not an astrology podcast, and um, I'm very transparent that I know almost nothing of astrology. So I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And again, that is something that I learned from my friend, Rachel. Uh, so 
thank you so much for coming on. I mean, we talked about so much in such a short amount of time, and I just really appreciate it. Uh, so you have your TikTok, um, which we will link to in our witchpod.com link tree, along with your YouTube and a link to your book, Spellbound. Uh, but was there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners before um, before you leave today? Not necessarily, but I would like to introduce your listeners perhaps to this new modality called human design. And there isn't a lot of accessible information about it yet, but it's if you like astrology or if you're interested in astrology, um, human design is kind of like astrology, but kind of not. But it's a new modality that I think a lot of people are just starting to get into now. And so, you know, speaking of technology and just how everything just builds and it's just a long line of the latest technology, the latest occult technology, I feel, is human design. And if you guys are interested, you can just Google human design. You put in all the information that you would put into an astrology chart into like a free chart generator for human design. You can just Google it, but it's going to give you a very, very different chart than an astrology chart. But it is, I believe, a complement to astrology, but it was developed in 1987. Um, so it's a very new, like super, super, super new modality. I'm obsessed with it. I'm totally into it. And much of my TikTok is now devoted into going deep into human design. I probably spent the past year, like thousands of hours and like, you know, just going into the source material of like human design. And I find it to be such an amazing new modality. So if you guys are interested, if you feel a pang inside of you, that's just like, whoa, human design, that sounds intriguing. I need to check it out. Just Google it. And Jovian Archive should be the first thing that comes up. And that's the main headquarters website of human design. And you can get a free chart there. I am doing that immediately. Once we, once we hang up, because that sounds, I just love new things and I love learning and that sounds really awesome. Um, and, you know, so, and, you know, so do, um, so do my listeners. So I'm sure we'll all be checking that out. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Witches. We hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day.